From McKinsey's Banking and Securities Practice, I'm Matt Cook, and this is Talking Banking Matters, short audio content for leaders in banking, securities, and beyond. In this episode, from an occasional series from our payments practice on payments and fintech, we talk with Gal Krubiner, co-founder and CEO of the lending platform startup Pagaya. It's not surprising that we should see a change in how loans are made, with the rapid increase in available data, easy-to-use APIs, cloud-based computing power, and AI capabilities. A number of companies have emerged to target the space, including buy-now-pay-later players, peer-to-peer and direct lenders, and lending marketplaces. Pagaya is a six-year-old Israeli fintech that's taken a different approach. It's a B2P2C player that operates at the nexus of two sets of customers. On the one hand, Banks and other lenders use its AI-based technology to originate lending products to their customers. On the other, institutional investors deploy capital to acquire loans that originators aren't able or willing to fund themselves, in effect benefiting lenders, investors, and consumers. Since we spoke with Gal in September, Pagaya, like much of the fintech world, has faced headwinds, and its valuation in the public markets has dropped significantly from earlier this year. But as you'll hear through the session, though, Gal remains an optimist and takes a long-term view to shareholder value creation at Pagaya. Gal was just 26 when he started the company with two others. He was already a serial entrepreneur who had also worked in investment banking. We talked with him about why he and his colleagues started Pagaya, why they chose the model they did, and how he views the ongoing turbulence in the market and the company's stock. But first, here's Gal describing what Pagaya does. I founded Pagaya six years ago together with two other co-founders, Avital Pardo, that is coming from the hardcore data science of Israel Tel Aviv, and Yav Yulzari, who is coming from the core heart ability of capital raising. And as we thought about the vision and the way Pagaya started was really as purely as such of connecting in between technology capabilities and specifically AI and research to assess risk with the financial capabilities of helping institutional clients to manage money. The very obvious places where the combination of the two has led us to was no different than the consumer credit. There is endless amount of data sets, very high level of integrity of data in the US consumer. Usually a credit file of a person in the US is 17 years. So you're starting to run models and build infrastructure of really millions of millions of millions of different trades with millions of different loans that has been provided in the past. So the, gra- the graph of the efficiency of the ability to create a better outcome, even though there were hundreds of banks in the US that did that for, I would say, three, four more decades than us, were very immediate, very, very quickly. And as we thought about it and became more and more in depth with the discussion, the opportunity is actually the infrastructure that, that is behind. And we build an ecosystem that is basically bringing a much better efficiency into the U.S. consumer credit world and being able to drive that into a very, I would say, complementary way to the way banks are working today. So Pagaya Technologies, in in a general, build a B2B2C model that is allowing to enable our mission, which is to make life-changing financial products and services available to more people. But we decided to look on it from an infrastructure perspective and to be able to create something that is enabling others to be able to serve more consumers. 
Pagaya's model provides lenders an underwriting capability to help them risk assess and price their loans. Second, for those loans that fall outside these lenders' credit box, the model created a new institutional funding capability to hold those loans, the theory being that fewer customers are turned away. Here's Gal to explain it further. The lenders can be fintechs, can be banks, can be different financial institutions that are providing credit. Now, the interesting part in that process is still as of today, these type of organizations doesn't know to underwrite all the flow that are coming in their way. Part of it are constraints by cost of capital. So you can think of the banks that are not that very effective in doing so below the 640 FICO or the subprime. Some other is because of lack of technology. What we thought is, if we will combine two very strong capabilities, which is the AI ability to connect to these guys and to assess, and in the same time, to be able to match that with a liquidity that is less dependent on the actual weight cost of the different type of regulations and banks, we will be able to provide a very meaningful lift for the amount of bookings that the partners can do from the flow that is coming through their door. Now, that has actually two outcomes from that. The one is it's creating a unique asset in asset flow, so creation of consumer credit, auto loans, and others. And in order to fund the business, we actually sold that to institutional investors. Now, while we have developed that, we have created, on the one hand side, the assets, but on the other hand side, we have created many more customers that actually went to the bank. So the bank got an enhancement of the ability to market itself to more customers. And in the same time, not actually take the weighted average, the weighted cost of capital on his books because the risk is not sitting with him. So conceptually, we decoupled the relationship from the asset. While the asset is traveling in our network and sitting into the asset investor's base, the relationship always stayed with the lender that the consumer came with. That approach and the fact that we do not have any brand, any B2C brand, created a full alignment between us, the banks that wants to book more loans and to have more relationship with the consumers, and the asset investors who doesn't care about the relationship and just want to, re- to create return. That was actually built in a very forward-looking tech capability that we have created an API plug that is connecting into the loan origination systems of all the banks and the fintechs that we have and proposing in real time an automated process to be able to identify which type of borrowers we actually want to provide credit to and they can become customers of that partners while we are taking their risk and placing that with the asset investors. So a situation where in the same time where the consumers are actually enjoying from getting more credit, the partners are winning because they are having more relationships and actually getting revenues from us. And last but not least, the investors are getting a diversified exposure to unique asset classes and ability to deploy capital at scale, which is very important for them. Because we were focusing only on the underwriting and the capital, we have managed to free a lot of resources rather than to do marketing and or servicing. And that has actually allowed us to travel in between markets. It's starting to look like Pagaya is looking to position itself as a network rather than simply a service provider. While on the one hand, it hopes to serve a growing group of lenders with customers looking for loans. On the other, it hopes to find an increasing number of institutional investors looking for yield. Because we're sitting in the back end of the ecosystem and connecting to many lenders, 
we're actually experiencing a unique situation when the market is opening up or closing very much like today. What is happening there, the banks are becoming even more conservative. So the flow and the need for Pagaya is becoming bigger and bigger. So that type of changes are things that are stabilizing our ability to operate over cycles as much as possible in a very, very rapid changing world. Pagaya's model raises an interesting question of risk sharing. With multiple parties involved, there is a potential misalignment of incentives that can arise between the entity pricing or servicing a loan and the entity holding the credit risk on that loan. In Pagaya's case, it has a set of investors on the one hand who are the risk takers and an originating bank on the other, servicing the loan, including collections, with Pagaya in the middle of each transaction. We ask Al to talk about how he balances the interests of investors, the banks and services, and the end consumer. All pricing is set up by us, so the full set pricing, maturity, credit box, AI. The way it works is the bank is adopting our AI model and pricing as a recommendation. And then in a, we'll not go deeper into the stuff, but like creating a situation where they are the origination based on our recommendation. And these things are being updated every quarter also. We brought Harish, which was the chief, he's our chief risk officer. He came from Bank of America. He was the head of uh, risk modeling in the consumer bank. And he built a full MRM process that is standing with the AAA kind of like standards uh, that the banks requires to have. The two main issues there usually are fair lending and model validation. And both of them are like things we crack the code on. There is a level of due diligence that you do that you don't work with organization that you think they don't understand the consequences of a reputational risk. And reputational risk for that type of organization is very crucial for their ability to fund generally. As we are tapering into the banks, this is a less common theme, um, but something that they still used to from the world of um, ABS, etc. So that is has been already standardized. Having said that, oversight and very rigid understanding and taking actions are very important. Let me give you one example. In COVID, one of the biggest outcomes were to be able to give the freedom to the borrower because they were in a situation where it was above their ability, especially in the first 45 days. And we came out with what we call the best practices for COVID back then, which is to allow different deferment programs that were approved by us when we actually encouraged the platforms to do so. And you saw the few banks and platforms were more like, yeah, we're going to be here. We're going to wait for them to call and then we'll assess and others who are saying, no, we'll do whatever it takes to help the people. What you figured out that the biggest solution was, and people didn't even understand that, was the amount of people on the phone. So the big push was to convince the platforms to develop the tech capabilities to do all the deferment payment online without a long ability to need to validate. More so to keep the lines open if really any, anyone needs anything else. They were literally monitoring day in, day out, how the queues in these phone calls have went crazy up and how much the impact of electronical technology to reduce that burden was very effective in returns. With this much automation, lenders often worry that working with artificial intelligence and machine learning makes it more difficult to identify and eliminate biases in the models. 
We ask Gal to talk about how Pagaya addresses this issue so that the banks it works with comply with regulatory requirements like the FDIC's fair lending laws and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau rules. Actually, in the US, there are very good practices of that capabilities already. And, and when you think about it, the process that they are doing is it's let's start from the results. So showing that like a superior model is not affecting any minority population. And theoretically, you can do that check on every model. Doesn't matter if it's easy to explain or how to explain. And they have developed a very, very strong methods for that. And the second piece is that with that, the ability to start and have an explanatory piece are becoming more and more mainstream. So you can have processes as such as identifying the top 10 parameters, the top 20 parameters. One of the things that we felt the banks are having a little bit struggle with is the fact that in an AI model, as you can imagine, all the parameters are relevant because you don't have like regression, the reduction of effectiveness of information ratio, when you add more parameters, there is no really reason why to eliminate them. So the first models of Pagaya were built over 1,600 parameters. One of the project internally, which was Pathfinder, which is to help banks get more comfortable with different things, was to reduce the amount of attributes in a model from a 1,600 to 266. So sometimes the compliance team will come and we say, yeah, we want 15, so we can understand very quickly. It doesn't work with AI. But a good compromise is coming at a few low hundreds. And I think after a lot of phone calls and a lot of understanding, it's doing the work. Efficiency in the world is coming through technology and every bit and byte we can get more of these tools into the different parts is going to result in a better outcome for all of us as a society. Most large banks tend to want to develop their credit risk models themselves, especially since they have more data than smaller banks given their larger customer bases and range of products. But once you get past the four largest US banks, each with over a trillion dollars in assets, there are another 5,000 banks in the country at the moment with an equal number of credit unions. We wondered whether Gal sees these smaller institutions as a source of future growth. So there are two sides for that, right? There is the funding and the sourcing. From a sourcing perspective, the answer is no. I think from a sourcing perspective, the small banks in the US are in a tough spot. Even a little bit tougher than they think. As we move to the world of technology, scale is even 10 times more important. And the disadvantage is continuing to happen over and over. Not to say that there is not a good mid-sized banks with a specialization that will be very strong, but for the long tail, I'm not sure if there is a lot from a sourcing perspective. On the other side, on the pure bank funding model, definitely. So I think that's actually an advantage for them because if back in the days, you could only have, as I said, a big infrastructure or not. And then a few of the big ones just captured the full market to themselves. Today, through players like us, they can have very simple access to assets to be able to generate the revenues and the returns. Now, there is a question of how much that actual model will allow you to overcome steps and to become a major player rather than just a service provider to keep the need of asset flow to come into the doors. But that's the places where I think it will be more meaningful for them and for us to play with. With economic conditions seeming to point towards a slowdown or even a recession, Pagaya faces some uncertain times. Rates have been rising, though economic indicators at the end of 22 pointed to a potential slowing of increases. And we could start to see delinquencies rise too. 
According to one analysis, while consumers still have $1.3 trillion in excess household savings left from the government COVID support programmes, those balances are already winding down. These are times when lenders separate into winners and losers. Gal talked about current macro conditions and how Bagaya's model will respond to the changes in the environment. Generally speaking, I think that in these days, it's, all, it's becoming more about relative value. So it's a little bit hard to explain, but the world today of consumer credit in the US is usually coming with a lot of competition. Just to put things in perspective, usually a borrower has between five to seven offers. So the ability or, or the thinking that a lender is only as good as how much is aggressive or not in different days is not that simple. You have two options. One, to increase the price, or second, to decrease. If you, risk, if you increase the price too much, you will find yourself that only the ones that didn't find the right outcome will end up with you. And if you decrease the price, you're part of the party and maybe going to be bailed out. What Gal is referring to is the age-old problem of adverse selection. At any point in time, lenders who price too high are left with desperate borrowers who have been turned down from cheaper alternatives. And lenders who price too low have depressed margins that could lose money. This balance is constantly shifting as the credit environment evolves. Those lenders who can anticipate changes early and adapt pricing and credit criteria accordingly will have an edge. The understanding of the macroeconomical environment and the availability of funding is a crucial part of being able to be a good lending and to be able to show consistent returns. That's what we showed in already October. One of the advantages that we have is that we see 40 different flows from four different places. And then you can start seeing phenomena that are happening across. Now, we are as good as what will react. We are as good as what will train the new models. And there are many more steps to that. But the unique vantage point is allowing us to react much more quickly. And if you will notice our Q2 earning reports, our peak was already in October because of the terroration that started in April. Next time, we're going to be better and we'll recognize that hopefully in August or September. But bottom line is that the ability to reduce that until March by 30-40% is a meaningful outcome. That is what you would expect from your lender or asset owner or manager. So to summarize the answer, there is so much you can do and there is still a relative value and we are all living in the world of macro when the Fed is deciding that the cost of capital is four or six the cost of capital is four or six and all the market is follow. But you can, with a unique setup or unique take capabilities to take the better approach of that rather than uh, the worse. Since its IPO in June 2022, Pagaya's stock price fluctuated, ranging from below $3 to above $34 over its first three months, which some analysts attributed to its low public float. In late September, a secondary offering of 46 million shares and a lockup expiration for early stakeholders seemed to trigger additional concerns that sellers would be flooding the market. At the time of our conversation, Bagaya's stock had hit $2.20. Let's clear the easy answers and the facts. Lockup came up two days ago. Most of the investors are early days. In that environment, it's how to build a book of buyers. It takes time for people to see and to learn and to be able to pull the trigger. So that's something we think will evolve into a solution in the next few months, quarters. Let me tell you the most shocking thing for me was that I think explaining the most what is happening in the world of investment. We all grew up on the belief that there are two types of investors, right? What are the types? 
long term and short term. Happens to be that a force like a Fed is coming into impact, which let's call it a year of impact. Let's call it two quarters on the short side, two years on the long side, more or less. That's it. There are not any more long or short investors. There are only short investors, short term. So if you look on, it doesn't matter which company, and you're a kid, and the bankers told to the kid that like you will see in the book, the whole terms holding and the short terms are running. Guess what are you finding? No one is able to keep positions because some way up, there was a dial. And then even a long-term investors are having hard time following that type of precision. When you are in an environment where the long-term players cannot be long-term players anymore, it takes time to readjust, reprice, and regroup. And I think we experienced that in 08 a little bit after the shock. There was a big question who are going to be the biggest players in that industry. And I think what's happening now is this reshifting of who's going to be the next long-term growth investors for the next 10 years. And sometimes it's as good as luck as choosing the five good names. Sometimes it's someone that was so persistent throughout the time and just did the right thing. But the point is that the world of investing is now in a freeze and people are not making decisions. And that's why we're seeing valuations and discussions are happening over that. And as soon as the Fed is going to mark that, will mark the end, it's going to push everyone to do the work and to decide which position they want to take. Today, no one is taking positions. Gal was referring, of course, to the current investor focus on earnings versus the promise of long-term growth. While some factors driving Bagaya's stock are unique to it, the current market turmoil for fintechs is enough to test even hardened leaders. Before starting Pagaya, Gal worked at UBS in London and Zurich, first in electronic currency trading, and then with ultra-high net worth banking clients. We asked him to talk about what he learned in those previous roles when he started Pagaya. But he surprised us and instead talked about why the fact that he and his co-founders were friends will really be the basis for their long-term success. Let's separate the vision that we spoke about a lot from the decision to be entrepreneur. So when I came back, I told to my two very good friends with a lot of high capabilities, let's do something together. It started from the together. Then I realized that a company is a sort of a way to design your, the people around you and to be able to spend 12, 15, 16 hours of your day with people who you share the same values, having the same beliefs, and influencing on who you are becoming. So to be able to have a group around you which are good-hearted, always challenging you, learning, and trying to be the best of the best, effectively that's influencing who you are and how you grow. That's a growth mechanism. And the biggest motivation for doing so was actually that. Not just for me, for my two co-founders too. And how we create the right ecosystem around us that will continue to develop us for many, many, many years to come. In its recent third quarter results released back in November, Pagaya's network volume had grown by 26% versus a year earlier, and revenues grew by 49%. But the slower credit environment was also taking its toll. Volume and net revenues were actually lower than in the second quarter. 
and EBITDA swung from a profit of $5 million to a loss of the same amount in the latest quarter. Even before earnings were announced, Bagaya's stock had slid further since our conversation and had been trading at around a dollar per share for a number of months. According to Eugene Simuni, an industry analyst at Moffitt Nathanson, investors and fintech companies will need to see a resilience of the credit and business models under stress scenarios before they jump back into these stocks. At the end of the day, businesses succeed based on individual choices. As the credit environment and interest rates continue to pressure the market, the shakeout between winners and losers will now be driven by a combination of lending experience, technology, adaptability, and sheer grit. In Pagaya's case, the outcome will also depend on how well the company can convince its investors that it has all of these attributes and more. On behalf of McKinsey's banking and securities practice, thanks for listening to Talking Banking Matters today. We've got a series of conversations planned, so we'll look forward to you retaking your front row seat to listen in on more industry leaders from the world of fintech, banking, and digital talk about their work shaping the future of this industry. For now, wherever you are today, thanks again for listening.